Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Policy Matters. I am Eric Allen, and this time I have a very special co-host. Uh, Nicole Horn is on vacation, uh, hopefully enjoying herself, but we had so much news going on this week, we had to jump into a show, and I was chatting and texting with my good friend, Niles Francis, who uh, most of my listeners know, and if you live in Georgia and you follow democratic politics, you definitely know, but today, the illustrious Niles Francis is here to join me. How are you doing, Niles? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing well. Now you're uh, you're joining from campus, right? So you're still. Yes, I'm um, out in Statesboro. Statesboro. All right. So we're going to get you back to class uh, soon. But this has been a uh, a crazy week. So as we sit here and record on on my birthday, Thursday, October fifth. Oh, um, thank you, thank you. Um, I just felt like we couldn't wait a week because next week. Nicole and I are going to have to cover the elections going on for speaker. Hopefully it won't be another 15 rounds, but this week uh, we saw history once again made. And I think we've become numb to every news cycle saying, you know, this is unprecedented. This is, but this is truly unprecedented. So for the first time in the history of this country, um, a parliamentary action was taken to oust the current speaker of the house by eight members of his own party in conjunction with the minority party, the Democratic Party, who did not vote for him at all, so their votes stayed consistent, um, was removed and vacated from the House uh, as Speaker. Um, so what, what, did, what did you take from that, Niles? It really is interesting how you have the, um, the Republican Party making all this history for the wrong reasons like they're in the headlines like the front runner Bluetooth for the disconnected has been charged four times in four different jurisdictions the narrow republican house majority can't keep a speaker and here we are like we're 40 days from a government shutdown and we have no speaker to help the country you know steer the country away from that and suppose there's an international crisis sometime between now and when a new speaker is elected like we're in unprecedented territory here and we have no idea who the next speaker is going to be like it's truly unprecedented territory yeah i i think that's a good point and it, you know we we've never had a break in our continuity of government and that's really what this is because the house speaker not only what if there's a national emergency the house speaker is second in line to the presidency that's a good point that's a good point um and and i i I read through and looked at the Constitution. I don't see that there's anything that allows us to jump over that spot or just, I mean, it's, there are a lot of things that are out there uh, that, that cause concerns. And, and what it does, I think, Niles, it, it highlights the chaos caucus that there's, there's always been concerns. And I would argue that the reason that's only a slim majority um, in the House is because of the chaos caucus. The, the Republicans, since the, I, I don't want to get too wonky, but even going back to the Tea Party, 2010, um, has started to insert these elements of of non-serious actors uh, within their party. And if you look at what happened in their primaries in 2022, a lot of these non-serious actors actually won their primaries, but then got defeated in the general and brought in you know, a very narrow majority, but a very vocal minority of unserious legislators who just want to see the system go down. And you know what? Uh, former Speaker John Boehner actually warned against these types of rabble rousers. Um, <laughs> and when he, like, he resigned from Congress because he saw the writing on the wall. 
Um, Speaker McCarthy, like, he was just so desperate for power that he was willing to do anything, give up anything in order just to be powerful. Like, it was never about, you know, the good of the country. It was never about, you know, him wanting to serve the people. It was about him just wanting to have power. <laughs> and, well, and, and even his Republican colleagues, if you listen to what they said after he was ousted, it was like, well, Kevin deserved this. No one worked harder. Kevin deserved this. Well, it, that was kind of the sense of entitlement that he operated with. And he was willing to do anything to have that vision fulfilled. He wanted to be speaker. He gave away this, this single motion to vacate where one member could call a motion to vacate. He was willing to give that away just so he could have the gavel. Yeah, I don't know if you read my piece this morning, but I said um, Kevin McCarthy was ousted from the job that he spent his entire career gunning for. Yeah. <laughs> for those who don't get that reference, Kevin the McCarthy young guns. was one of the original quote-unquote young guns. All three of those guys are now out of jobs. Yeah, yeah. It was Eric, Eric Cantor. Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Kevin Paul McCarthy. Ryan, yeah. <laughs> All That's, of them are out of and- jobs and then you just just oppose that with um, what was going on with Democrats this this week at the same time. You know, I, I I was listening and and a lot of the the talking points that the Republican conference has been putting out there is that this was the Democrats plus eight did this, and and I think that's just it, it's it's BS. It's why kind would, of uh, why would the minority party save the majority party's leader? If if the tables were turned, there is no way that Republicans would have voted to save a Nancy Pelosi. Exactly. exactly. No way. That's no way. No, nor nor did any of them ever that are in the House that voted the last eight years ever vote for a Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. Exactly. So it's so so it's 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 disingenuous on that end. You know, I I, I give that. Um, I, I, but I think it. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I've seen that I've seen this talking point come up a lot from Republicans who represent those Biden districts. Yep, those are the guys who relied so heavily on McCarthy's fundraising apparatus, and they're pissed. Quite frankly, like their biggest fundraising um, weapon is gone, and they have to start from scratch now, ahead of another crucial election. I would challenge you on one thing on that. I'll get back to my other point in a minute, but I, I think the fundraising thing is interesting. Kevin McCarthy is still Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy still has those networks and going to raise money. What I worry about is, well, don't worry about it. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. He's going to raise all of that money and turn it on those eight members. They, they're going to do some purging of, because I think now this is the awakening moment. This is the moment where they look at it and say, well, wait a minute. This is the American people now truly know we can't govern and we've got a clean house. And you, you alluded to it earlier, the chaos in the, the Republican Party. You've got, you know, in, in one day, people, let me paint a picture for you. On the right, you've got a four-time indicted, 91-count, uh, plus civil case um, front runner of your party sitting in a courtroom being chastised by the judge for basically doxing one of his clerks. You've got the Matt Gates and the Fabulous Eight ousting a speaker of their party who has 96% support within that party, but this small group being able to oust them. And now, 40 days prior to a government shutdown on the right, there is no leadership in the only – I mean, let's be honest. They, they literally control 
one half of one third of government. And they can't get that right. Now, on the other side, on the same day all this is happening, you've got Joe Biden negotiating drug prices, working hard to still relieve the burden of student debt. You've got so you've got all of these wins going. You've got Kamala Harris traveling the country, talking to HBCUs about funding, about the importance of of, of education and black students. You got all these things going on, on the left. This is the worst case scenario now for Republicans. I think that that one day snapshot, if you were to take a picture of all of the key players and where they were in that day, in that moment, it is no doubt that the Republican conference is in sheer chaos. And I feel that they will have a lot of retribution come November of 2024. Martin, you left one thing out on the same day that all that was happening. LaFonza Butler was being sworn in right across the that, That's right. You're right. No, you're right. The oh. third, the third African-American woman to serve in the United States Senate, the first out lesbian woman to serve in the United States Senate was being sworn in across the, uh, across the hall it's in the other chamber. It's so it's, a- uh, so, so, you know, we've, we've laid out all of what happened this week. What do you see next week? I know they're, they're out because of uh, Diane Feinstein, God rest her soul. Uh, I know her services, her funeral services are today and tomorrow. Um, so the Congress officially won't be back in until Tuesday. Um, and that's when the conference, the Republican conference will caucus to find out who they're going to put up as their next speaker. We know that Jim, jo- Jim Jordan and uh, Steve Scalise are already saying they're going to run. So Niles, one, do you see anybody else jumping in? And two, who do you think is going to win it? Um, quite frankly, I don't know. Um, this is a very, very, like, this is a, this is a very, very divided Republican conference. We've seen this all year. Like, they, they're divided on the issue of funding the government, uh, Ukraine support, um, whether or not we should impeach Joe Biden. Um, there are just a lot of issues where the caucus, where the, where the conference is extremely divided and it's going to be hard to find one candidate who can satisfy the entire, um, conference on those areas. Um, as for, as to who might, when? Um, I don't know. Um, Steve Scalise, the number two Republican in the uh, House, seems like the odds-on um, favorite on paper, but um, he's battling health issues. He was shot at the um, congressional baseball game a couple of years right. ago, and he is currently undergoing treatment for a type of blood cancer. M- multiple myeloma. Yep. Yeah, yes, yes, that's correct. Um, so I don't know how that's going to play into it, um, but he does have some support here in Georgia. Um, Congressman Buddy Carter and Austin Scott, and I believe Drew Ferguson are supporting him. So he does have some support here in Georgia. Um, Jim Jordan, I think it's going to be very hard for um, Jim Jordan to win the speakership um, because <laughs> the uh, first of all, Steve Scalise is a better fundraiser than Jim Jordan. And um, Jim Jordan, I don't think you're... Republicans from Biden districts want to be associated with Speaker Jim Jordan. <laughs> um, and then there are other candidates who could run as well. Um, Elise Stefanik, um, the congresswoman from upstate New York, might um, run. She's kind of taken up the, like, one thing McCarthy, I will give him credit for, one thing McCarthy has been able to do over the years is recruit a diverse slate of candidates in these competitive districts. Um, women, um, 
uh, people of color. Um, those are the people who helped him assemble this House majority. And um, Elise Stefanik has kind of been prioritizing that as well, more so with um, women. Like she's tried to recruit more women to run in competitive races and safe races as well. So she's also a really good fundraiser. So um, she's, I don't think she's publicly announced that she's running, um, but she is somebody I could kind of see, um, you know, stepping in if neither Scalise or Jordan can um, assemble 218. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that people miss out on in this, you know, I've, I've been in a legislature. I've seen this up close. The non-serious people, and I would, I, I consider Jim Jordan a non-serious. I mean, he's, he's a flamethrower. He's one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus. He's, he's not really serious. He's not trying to get things done. And and when you don't try to get things done, the one benefit, the one deficit that you have is your your infrastructure, your staff, your infrastructure that can whip, that can that has relationships with other staffers, that has to me, that's the golden nugget for Steve Scalise. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, he is a serious, serious legislator. He has a serious staff that has tons of relationships that now he can deploy. And in in old Washington, you know, there's this um, you know anti-meritocracy <laughs> sentiment where it's not about who's the best. It's kind of like who's in line. And if, if, if that holds true, Steve Scalise is kind of in line. And if they, if they stick to that, that's going to happen very rarely in these congressional leadership uh, races. Do you have surprises? Um, yeah, I will say that um, on that point, you actually uh, bring me to a really interesting point. I think it's interesting. Like Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, they have little in common. They have little in common, but the one thing that they do have in common, they both hated their number twos. <laughs> they both hated their number twos. Um, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer ran against each other for a leadership post several years ago. And I don't know if you know this. Yeah. She actually endorsed his opponent in the race. In the race. Yep. <laughs> in, um, like, I think when they first took back the house a couple of years ago. But, um, yeah, so they've never liked each other. And then Kevin McCarthy knew that Steve Scalise was waiting on him to be, to, uh, be ousted. Steve, Steve Scalise played it well. He, he, he played the role. He was an ally. He knew he wasn't going to win if mm -hmm. he ran against McCarthy. But he also knew McCarthy was going to implode. So I think he played it white. Be the loyal sidekick. I'm going to be here. I'm going to support you. And, oh, by the way, when it all falls apart, I'll swoop in and I'll, I'll take the job. Yeah, I'll, I'll take well, – no, no, I don't have to take it from you. You're going to get rid of it. You're not even going to be a factor. I'll just take the job. Exactly. Um, and so I think that's uh, that's it. So we, we'll talk a lot more next week, and I may bring you back on, even though Nicole will be back, and the three of us can kind of talk about this this next race. I My prediction, uh, and I'll, I'll put it down now, is I don't see this going any less than 20 ballots. Um. I, and, and and I see more than one nominee. Think about last time we went 15 ballots and the only nominee they put up was, was uh, Kevin. I, I see that after five, six, seven, if whoever's up doesn't get through, I don't think they're going to have the blind ambition Kevin McCarthy had. I think they're going to take a break. And I think you'll see someone else come back up and it may take them five, six. Uh, I can see that. I can see that because like right now, nobody has 218. Nobody has no. to attain. And then you have some members like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are endorsing the idea of Trump becoming speaker. For those who don't know, the speaker is not required to be a sitting member of Congress, but Trump becoming speaker is not going to happen. How, however, however, House rules, I mean, not House rules, GOP conference rules. It's in their rules. I can't remember the exact rule. I'll try to look it up before we, we get off. But I looked it up because I wanted to be sure. 
if anyone is indicted in leadership, they must resign. So therefore, based on House conference rules, Trump is not even eligible because he's a four-time indicted individual. So anyone saying that they're going to bring in Trump, they would have to change their rules to allow an indicted uh, individual to serve on leadership. Number two, he's complaining that he has to be in court and he can't campaign. What makes him think being think think of Donald Trump every day using the well and using the dais as a campaign stop that will create so much chaos into that body. I don't think that there are a majority of Republicans who think that would be a good idea. Just, yeah. I just don't. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We have the speaker. I don't know who the next speaker is going to be. It could be somebody that's not even running right now for all we know. I, I, it could it could be Donald. It could be. Um, you know, I, it's it's tons of people that could be Comer. Um, it, I mean, there there yeah, there there are names out there that I don't think people are talking about. So we'll pay close attention to that. But some other breaking news yesterday in Georgia, uh, Judge Steve Jones, uh, federal judge overseeing the Maps case. You know, there's a consolidated uh, case being heard by Judge Jones. Uh, brought by Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, uh, Pendergrass, and Grant. So all three of these are looking at not only the uh, congressional maps, but the state ledge, state house, state senate. And in an interesting twist. So the the case was heard. We're waiting on Judge Jones to come out with an order. Uh, hopefully something a lot like what happened in Alabama, where he's going to say, here are the districts that you need to make sure that are opportunity districts for minority voters. But yesterday, in a in a twist, Judge Jones issued um, an order that was a question to Attorney General Merritt Garland on the legality of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So this went out and said, you know, Attorney General Garland, can you let me know in 60 days whether or not the section, section 2 of the of the Voting Rights Act has been deemed unconstitutional because that is the main argument that the defendants made in this case. And to me, to me, Niles, that points to 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 a really good sign that one, I I do believe this is going in the favor of the plaintiffs, uh, and that there will be some type of order given for maps to be redrawn, which will have a cascading effect of all kind of chaos, especially within congressional. Yeah, it's, it'll be cascading chaos, but I I think that it's also affirmative affirming that that's going to be the, the ruling only because this seems to be a clarification needed for appeal because it will get appealed. And it it kind of, it kind of, to me, it just, the way I feel, it, it feels like he's streamlining that appeals process to say, no, we've already gotten, you know, we've got the Alabama cases. We've gotten now the opinion of the attorney general that Section 2 is not unconstitutional. Um, and so, therefore, we're going to redraw these maps. And once it gets to appeal, those are already on the record, and it kind of speeds up the process. Yeah, this is actually very exciting for those of us who've been following this very closely. Um, the uh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think Judge Jones is trying to get ahead of the expected appeals from the state if he does rule in favor of the plaintiffs and um and that appeals process he knows could drag well on into next year and possibly 
delay the map drawing process to the point where they'll just use the current maps. And I don't think Judge Jones wants that to happen, so he's just trying to get ahead of the appeals process. But like you said, the uh, cascading effect that this is going to have if he does rule in favor of the plaintiffs is going to be... Um, something else like you're going to have members who might find themselves in districts with fellow members you're going to have members of congress possibly switching districts like i said we're not even going to get into that right now but, yeah. um, <laughs> but um, the cascading effect is going to be um incredible well i, th I think the state ledge is going to be the more chaotic state state the, the congressional districts i think you may have one district majorly impacted but as, as you know for for people listening you can't impact one district without impacting all 14. There's yeah. going to be changes everywhere. I, mean, I don't think there's – there may be a way to do it with one or two districts not being touched at all. But for the most part, I think everything's going to be revisited. Mm -hmm. um, but on the state ledge side, the, the, the thing that scares me the most is because of timing. Remember, Judge Jones came out with this ruling uh, – with a statement about this case in January of 2021 uh, – 22 – and said that it was too close to the 2022 election – to do anything to change these maps. Well, we're in October. He's given Merrick Garland 60 days to respond. So that's getting us into end of November, early December. We're getting up against that clock where if it was too early in January of 22 to do anything, then you, you, you probably would have the same logic in January of 24. So we got a real small window where things are going to move, I think, extremely quick, including the appeals process. Uh, but I think the the legislature is already prepared for a special session. I think they're they're thinking through it. I would argue that some of the uh, members of leadership have already probably started drawing alternative maps to look at what's going to happen. But the the doomsday scenario would be if we get up against that clock and Judge Jones orders a special master, because a special special master will not take into account residency or incumbency. And here's what I mean by that. When when regular redistricting is done by the legislature, they take deference to where you live if you are a current member to try to make sure what Niles was talking about doesn't happen, where you're drawn into a district with other people. If a special master comes in and draws these maps, they're not inclined to take a look at that. They're just going to draw them and plot it out, and where they land, they land. You may have districts where three incumbents are now drawn in one district because the lines are that close, running for one state house seat. Um, so that, that would be, be total chaos. The other component of it is in Georgia, we have a residency requirement where you must live in your district one year prior to the general election. So that means if you're going to run for a seat in November of 2024, 2024, you need to be living in that permanent residence prior to November 3rd of 2023, like next month, you got to be ready to move. If these maps don't come out until December and you're now drawn into a new district constitutionally, you do not meet the, the residency requirement to run in that seat. So will that be will will they have a residency waiver? Will they I mean this is this is going to have a cascading effect of just a little bit of unsettledness. I don't want to call it chaos. I think we'll be able to order through it, but it's it's gonna be a very, very tough time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Like you're already hearing names floated for potential, you know, higher for a higher office and di different districts, and you have candidates announcing for these districts that we don't even know are going. We don't even know what they're going to look like yet. So um, it's just 
like you said, it's going to be chaotic. Um, like we will probably be able to get through it, but it's going to be like we've seen it before. Um, because the Democrats yeah. did the same thing in the early two thousands, and when those maps were thrown out in court, it led to a cascading effect. So yeah, we might see the same thing here twenty years later. Yeah, yeah. Or or they, or they may take the opportunity to draw out some people they don't like. I mean, um, if if I were Colton Moore right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would be very afraid because the Republic, when they have to redo these maps, if there's any way they can change some stuff and draw Colton more out of his district, I can guarantee it's going to happen. Yeah, uh, he's so, definitely, um, definitely on Kemp's. I think he's probably going to, I think you're probably going to see a well-funded Kemp primary challenger <laughs> um, against him in 2024. Well, okay, yeah, well, Kemp can't run for election. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, Kemp will fund a primary challenger to him. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's Pat. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, well, all right. Well, look, that's uh, just a snapshot of what's going on. We're going to keep our eyes and ears to the ground to figure out what's going to happen with uh, the speaker's race. Uh, we know Kevin McCarthy is out. We have no idea who and when uh, we will be able to call a person speaker again. We just know that Nancy Pelosi and um, Steny Hoyer have been kicked out of their offices. They're they're hideaways. Uh, so the pettiness has begun. The race is underway and we will keep you all up to date next time on our next episode of Policy Matters. Thank you very much, Niles, for joining us today. No problem. Hopefully I'll see you next week. Absolutely.